All right, what's going on, everybody? It's time for another episode of Too Hard for the Radio, transmitting from the future free state of greater Idaho. I am the one-armed madman. And from the great state of Florida, we have got Ken Rolla with us today. Ken, how you doing? I'm great to be here, Nick. Oh, man, I'm I'm really excited about this one. Anytime I get a chance to listen to a podcast about alternative energy, I get all jacked up. And so I'm I'm just to the moon to be able to talk to you with this. So um, we were talking before the podcast and I think since like you said, I'm a lineman and, and um, I was telling you before, I feel like when you watch a Graham Hancock and he scolds the archeologists for being taught the wrong thing, I think I'm the archeologist today. So I'm excited <laughs> to be taught the right way on things. So let's get into this. How does electricity one of the best things that I learned in line school was um, electricity is FM, which is fucking magic. So I thought that <laughs> yeah. was I yeah. thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. A lot of times the electricity, even you know, my background is electrical engineering, and um, and even with all of the education and training I've had, it'll very often surprise you. You know, it's like sometimes when I'm designing new circuits. Um, it'll do things I was not expecting. So yeah, it is. Uh, and, and I think the reason is because what we've been taught about the way electricity works and the true nature of it is wrong. I mean, when I look back at what I was taught about electricity in engineering school, it was just flat wrong. And it's been discovered by cutting edge minds, um, you know, more about how it really works. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're taught that at least I was taught in engineering school that electricity flows through wires, for example, conductor, um, like electrons flowing through a conductor, but that's not really how it works. Like, it actually, wa- like water through a hose. Exactly, exactly. And they use these metaphors, you know, like um, current and voltage, you know, being like the speed water traveling through a, um, a piece of pipe or the force behind it, you know, how much pressure it has, kind of equating that. And that really it's useful for maybe for, you know, practical things, working with uh, simple circuits and things, but it doesn't, it, it belies the true nature of electricity and how it operates. It's more like instead of electrons flowing through a conductor, it's kind of like if you had a long chain and you shook one end of it and that, you know, that waveform ripples yep. through the chain, it's more kind of like that. Um, back in the seventies, I remember there was a man named Joe Newman who actually got on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson because he developed a free energy machine. Wow. And he demonstrated it on the Tonight Show several times, which you can see on YouTube. And um, and Carson, you know, he said his people investigated it and they couldn't find any flaws in the physics of it. And I, rec- I remember as I was like a teenager, Joe Newman saying that, you know, he was just a good old country boy and he didn't know anything about electricity. But what he had learned was it was kind of like, energy electricity flowing through wires is kind of like having a whole lot of uh, billiard balls lined up in a row and you hit one on one end and the other one pops out on the other end. And so that's how he was able to engineer his circuits. And of course he was heavily persecuted for it. And uh, I was thinking he probably got heavily depressed and killed himself and left a note (laughs) apologizing for everything that he got wrong. I don't know if, you know, if he got suicided, um, but I do know his technology is very famous within engineering and free energy circles, but it went nowhere, of course. And then in the 90s, I worked with free energy technology, which we can talk about. And same thing, it was sabotaged at every turn by government agencies and such. 
So yeah, it's when you develop any kind of technology that goes against the existing status quo paradigm, um, if it's a, if it's a paradigm shifting technology, then they're not going to just go quietly in the night. They're going to do everything they can to stop you um, because they're heavily invested. And they make a lot of money off of it, and also you know the energy systems on Earth are all centralized, and it's part of a control system on Earth. So if you come out with a you know a little blender sized device that can power your whole house, um, and you can just buy it and stick it on your house and and have distributed energy everywhere. Oh, that's not going to fly. You know the the power companies and all are not going to let that come out and, and the people behind them. And I know this for a fact because in the 90s, I worked with a man named um, Ewell Brown who developed a water fuel technology. And um, Brown was a brilliant physicist. And he figured out how to pulse electricity through water in a specifically designed chamber that would create resonance and it would bring energy in from other dimensions of time and space. Ooh odd as that may sound, uh, because it didn't break any laws of physics. Conventional physicists would look at it and go, oh, there's no way this can work. This breaks the laws of physics. But it actually didn't. It was just using an unconventional physics that mainstream science wasn't familiar with. But it would bring in what some people call zero-point energy. Uh -huh. There's other terms for it, scalar energy, longitudinal waves, and such. But it's basically energy coming in from other dimensions of time and space. And so Brown's technique and his technology would would basically pulse electricity through water, which can split the H2O molecules, uh, which is very common. It's called uh, electrolysis. Yep. Um, but his was unconventional in that normally electrolysis uses more energy to split the water than it, you know, than it's going to produce. But with Brown's technique, it would bring in energy from other dimensions of space-time and use resonance to split the H2O molecules. So it used very little energy inputs and then, and it would split the H2O into hydrogen and oxygen molecules, but then rearrange them in a different geometric configuration. So instead of H2O, you had HHO, where the, you know, you had a hydrogen connected to a hydrogen connected to an oxygen atom. And in that configuration, it would convert the water to a gas, but it was not a gaseous, I mean, it was not a, you know, it was not steam. It was a fourth phase of water that was a gas. And it could, you could ignite it, and it would burn with a blue flame like a welder. You, they actually built welders with this. But this when it Brown's was gas. burning, that gas was actually imploding back into liquid water. So uh, I got one of these water welders back in the 90s and experimented with it for, for a few weeks. And it was really weird because that, that flame, because that whole, the whole physics of it was just weird. Um, it would interact with a material when you put it, you know, when you burn a material, it would interact at the atomic and subatomic levels and basically do alchemy. So it would rearrange the atomic and subatomic structure of the material. So Brown discovered you could take radioactive materials and combine them with uh, other materials and weld them together and they would melt and convert to another material that would make the radioactive or the radioactivity go away. And so um, there's, um, you can actually see a guy talking about this on YouTube if you search on Brown's gas additional properties. That's, I was thinking that I, was, I, I interrupted for a second and then I stopped myself, but yeah, Brown's gas. I, I, um, I've heard this spoken about. I was actually, um, my grandmother's got Alzheimer's and I was showing this, I'm like, what do you think if we get one of these things? And 
get her on the Browns gas for a couple hours a day. You know, maybe yeah. it'll keep her from putting a cigarette in her mouth for a few hours as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. George Weissman at Eagle Research, That's he guy. sells Browns gas machines for health because he very wisely knows you're not going to get it out, you know, for any kind of energy production device. So, uh, but it seems to be, you know, for his, the scale of what he's doing and and how he's doing it. Nobody's been bothering him to my knowledge, but uh, yeah, it's like, it can be used for a lot of different things. Um, it can be a non-toxic fuel. Um, it can actually neutralize radioactivity and it can clean up pollutants because you can take any toxic material and burn it with this Brown's gas flame and it will convert it. It'll break it down into other constituent elements and make, you know, they're non-toxic. So you can clean up all kinds of toxic waste. You can neutralize radioactivity. You can power things non-toxically. And it will clean the air if you're running a car on it because while you're driving, it's taking this gas and sucking in polluted air and sending out water and pure air out of the tailpipe. So it could, you know, if we had all the cars on earth running on this stuff, it could clean up earth really quickly. We could neutralize Fukushima and, and, and uh, Chernobyl and other nuclear disasters very quickly. Um, you know, we could turn this plan around very quickly, but it, it completely goes against the existing control paradigm and the energy paradigm on Earth. And uh, nuclear power is not just a, a very profitable power industry. It's really a justification for the nuclear weapons industry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the materials and the, the corporations that make nuclear materials for the power company they also make them for bombs and that kind of stuff. So, so they don't want that paradigm taken away and the countries that have the nuclear advantage don't want it taken away from them so you know with brown's gas you could neutralize nuclear weapons you could do all kinds of stuff and there's other i've worked with other energy technologies skater energy technologies that can neutralize radioactive elements and neutralize radioactive weapons so the powers that be will suppress any kind of technology that's related to that physics because they know the bigger implications um so it's yeah it's I've had multiple attempts on my life. I've had friends murdered who were trying to get this technology out to the world and, and turn things around. But uh, the control paradigm is very, very expansive and complete. And so you're not going to see any real green energy solutions until they decide that, or else they're taken down in some way, shape or form, which may happen. It may happen. But this whole you know, so-called green revolution right now going on in the United States with all this electric car push and all that, that is completely a smokescreen because electric cars, as they're implemented right now, are so unsustainable in so many ways. And it, it amazes me that people who buy them don't think about, you know, they think they're doing good for the planet, but it's actually just as bad, if not worse, than a gas-powered vehicle because you're you're basically shifting the power production from you in the car to the power company, which, you know, like 70% of power plants in the United States are coal fired. So you're not, you're not improving the pollutant level no. by any means run, running an electric car, but it's, it's also, you know, in many ways, inferior range and things like that. But then also the batteries use massive amounts of rare earth minerals that are hard to find. That's why they're called rare earth minerals. They're expensive and there's not enough of them on planet earth to switch the earth over to electric vehicles. Um, as they're implemented now. And then of course, you've got other health issues like the massive EMF electromagnetic fields that electric vehicles put off that's very damaging to living organisms and on and on and on. So the whole electric car push is a smoke screen from what I've seen 
to further control and enslave people, basically make it yeah. so expensive people can't afford cars. And then electric vehicles are heavily dependent on software, which you know is internet connected and can be hacked and controlled. You can have your car shut down if you're not a good boy yeah. like me, if you're you know creating technologies to help humanities that go against yeah. the the uh, official narratives and such, then you know they can control and shut your car down or stop you wherever they want. So, and not to mention surveil you. I mean, Tesla's right now Tesla vehicles record everything that's going on in the cars and around them, and that's not yeah. even a secret. That's considered a feature of the yeah, car, exactly. So. You know, and as a lineman, like you know, I'm a knuckle dragger, and I could see through this green revolution immediately like i i did research for 20 minutes i go okay let's look into wind and solar a little bit and see what they're talking about and uh you go onto the department of energy's own website and they'll tell you that they want to build 420,000 miles of transmission lines to to hook up all these windmills by 2030 and you go okay how many miles of transmission lines are we building a year last year we built 350 miles so, and you know, if you, you throw a rock in this country, you hit private property, endangered species and protected habitats. So good luck building any transmission lines in this country, let alone, you know, the equivalence of 15 times around the planet. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's, well, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's just not sustainable. It's not a, you know, you can't, and here's the thing, you know, you can't store this energy if you're mm -hmm. generating it by solar or wind. I mean, you could store it in batteries, but not on a on a grand scale for a country. And so now, you know, maybe Elon Musk can come up with something. But again, the problem you have with these batteries, first of all, is that they use a lot of rare earth elements and they are expensive. And eventually you've got to do something with those chemicals. You know, they'll say, oh, yeah. we can recycle them. And yes, you can recycle them a certain amount of times, but eventually you can't recycle them. And then you got to do something with those chemicals. So, you know, if we were using true free energy, number one, of course, you could be producing it yourself and it would be distributed and you wouldn't need all these transmission lines and all this ridiculous nonsense, mm -hmm. or you could have wireless power distribution using scalar technology and using frequencies that are not damaging and harmful to living organisms. Uh, so that's, that's a possibility. You know, Tesla did it back in the early 1900s with his Wardenclyffe Tower and, you know, wireless transmission um, using that way. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of different options, but none of the ones out in the market, whether it's solar or wind or whatever, those are all really lame versions of what they could be. You know, for example, if you were using for wind or solar, if you were using superconducting wires yeah. for the storage and transmission, then you can make that extremely sustainable because when you have a superconducting um, wire or conductor, there's no resistance and therefore there's no loss. So you can create these giant coils of wire if they're superconducting and inject electricity into them and then connect the two ends of the wires together and it acts like a battery. It'll just yeah. hold energy there ad infinitum, you know? And so you could make these technologies very sustainable if um, superconductivity was allowed out. But the last time, I, I recall in the 80s when I was in college, there were a couple of professors at the University of Utah named Pons and Fleischmann and they came out with what they called cold fusion. Yeah. And it worked. Um, and of course, immediately the powers of be lit into them. And these guys knew that they weren't going to get it into scientific journals and go through the usual academic uh, review process because it would get killed. So they went straight to the public and said, look what we've got. And they demonstrated it and they showed it. And then other uh, people around the world 
also duplicated, demonstrated. So it worked. And but they were heavily, heavily attacked and eventually shut down and defeated. And one of them wound up moving. I think they both moved out of the country because they were so heavily persecuted. And I think one of them may have been killed. Uh, and the other one wound up moving, I think, to France and, you know, living out his life about 20, 30 years later, he was vindicated when other researchers started producing it so massively that it couldn't be suppressed anymore. But they knew they couldn't call it um, cold fusion. So they, now they call it low energy nuclear yeah. resonance. Yeah, that's insane. But it's so, the same damn thing. So it's interesting that you you bring up superconductors. So there was I had the story pulled up. I was trying to find it. Um Recently in the news, they uh, some scientists put out a room temperature superconductor, which is not actually room temperature, but it was at a reasonable temperature at high pressures. And then a couple of weeks later, it's they're calling it a hoax. So these is this. Have you looked into this at all? Is it a hoax or are they trying to step on somebody who's getting too close to the prize? Oh, they're definitely pressing it because, well, you it's like. Biology, for example, there, there are many examples of superconductivity in nature and in our own bodies. Our DNA is a superconducting fractal antenna. There's superconductivity throughout the human body. And all you got to do is go online and Google, you know, superconductivity in the DNA or go get the book, The Genie in Your Genes. All they have to do is study, or oh, how is the superconductivity working in the, in the human body? Well, and it's known how it's done. It's superconducting monoatomic minerals in the body can conduct electricity that way. So, yeah, there's plenty of people that know how to create superconductivity at room temperature or above. Um, but again, it's all being suppressed. And I'm not I'm not reading conjecture and stuff on the Internet. You know, I've worked with these technologies. Yeah. I've been working with this stuff for like 30 some years and uh, I've seen the reality of it. I've seen these technologies in, in use. I've seen anti-gravity propulsion systems, for example, and believe it or not, time travel propulsion systems and all kinds of crazy stuff I've met at least six people working in the United States government and in academia who've worked on anti-gravity time travel systems for the U.S. government and the military and secret space programs. So uh, for me, this is not like reading stuff on the internet. I have lived it. I, I know people now working with these technologies. I developed a lot of these technologies, uh, some of which I can't talk about. But so I'm, I'm speaking from experience. I'm not speaking from reading stuff on the internet. So what does the, I'm guessing this is probably the military, what do they want to use time travel for? That seems like a terrifying <laughs> group of people. Extremely terrifying. Yeah, it's, of course, they they want to use it for using nefarious purposes. But, for example, they would like to be able to go back in time and alter timelines and change history. But uh, I've got a friend who actually was in the secret space program, and actually I know a couple people who have been in time travel programs where they are sent out. Um, they're basically, usually they're taken when they're young children because at a young age they can, I guess there's something about them that's easier for them to time travel. But they basically put them in these programs or they'll take military people like Marines or whatever, and they'll put them in these special programs and then they will modify them with, um, technologies, sometimes nanotechnology, um, DNA altering technology, and, and then they'll use other external technologies where they can basically teleport these people through time. And so they can send them to another time and place. 
And then they can be performing operations in these other timelines and places uh, that, you know, for example, like colonizing Mars. Um, I've heard from multiple people that, you know, there are lots of different colonies on Mars, some human, some extraterrestrial. And, you know, that may sound totally crazy to people listening, but, um, you know, Laura Eisenhower, for example, who we were both speakers at a conference years ago, she's the great granddaughter of Dwight Eisenhower. She's said that Dwight uh, spoke about, you know, him meeting five different extraterrestrial races back in the 50s and 60s. So, and, and Kennedy also, you know, she she mentioned, and other people have mentioned, you know, Kennedy and Eisenhower both have in contact with at least five different extraterrestrial races, some human and some not. But at any rate, so these guys that I know in secret space programs that have been in these time travel programs, they started out very fundamental where they were just trying to see what they could do with it. And they wound up having some really bad experiences in some cases. And there, there were different programs going on. But now it's evolved to the point where they have a lot of control over it. What, what I was told by these two guys that I know in the programs, they said that you can't go back in time like and change your timeline. You create a new timeline. So you can't go back in the past and kill your grandfather and wipe yourself out because it'll just create a new timeline. So that's what, something that the military and the secret space programs found out early on that they were trying to manipulate timelines. They couldn't. And there are also a lot of one, one of these guys told me that the timelines are kind of self-healing. So if you go and manipulate a timeline, it will try and revert back to what it was supposed to be. So a lot of times they'll try and manipulate timelines and they won't be successful because it'll kind of self-heal. It's like events will occur. It will bring it back to the original primary timeline. So, so, um, so, so it's very complicated and I don't begin to you yeah. know, claim to understand it. So it's kind of like a, a river that branches off into streams and then meets itself meets back up again before it heads down in yeah very much so because the whole cosmos when you look at it from a physical and energetic standpoint um, everything is structured fractally which just means branching or geometric so you know when you look at the fundamental building blocks of matter it's all arranged geometrically and and actually energy comes first matter comes second because one of the things that's been discovered when you look inside of atoms some of the cutting edge people have, there are technologies that can look inside of atoms and actually see some of the atomic structures. Um, back in the 1950s, there was a guy named Elmer Nemus, and people can look this up online if you want to see it. Um, his last name is N-E-M-E-S. Uh, he developed a thing called a Nemus scope, N-E-M-E-S-C-O-P-E. -E. You can go into Google Images and search on Nemus scope, and you'll pull up these images that he was able to magnify at 5 million times optically so it wasn't like a representation. It was, an, it was an actual optical image at 5 million magnification. And he could look inside of atoms and he could see atomic structure. And uh, so there are images online of iron atoms showing the, you know, the structure of iron atoms and how they are actually structured. And it's quite interesting. But at any rate, there's you know, a lot has been learned about the nature of matter and energy that is not disclosed, it's classified, it's kept in, you know, secret programs and such uh, about the nature of matter and energy and time and all that kind of stuff. And so because of my exposure to some of this stuff, I have a very different worldview and viewpoint about this. But energy comes first because we're living in this holographic universe. When you look inside of atoms, you don't have smaller and smaller and smaller particles. Once you get down below the proton, neutron, and electron level, you don't have quarks and leptons and muons and gluons and all those 
other ridiculous particles. Every time nuclear scientists, mainstream nuclear scientists find a new property of atomic structure that they can't explain, they just make up a new particle, yeah. which is complete nonsense. It's so unscientific, but that's what they do. But that's not what it is. Once you get down below the proton, neutron, and electron level, people like Nassim Harriman, for example, have shown that what you have is geometric patterns of light. And so these geometric patterns of light kind of slow down and coagulate into the, the proton, the neutron, the electron, and the atom. And so what that means is, number one, we're living in a holographic universe. But number two, that light is superluminal light, meaning it's light traveling millions of times faster than the conventional speed of light. And it has very weird properties. And so military people call them skater waves or skater energy. But what it really is, it's the energy of consciousness. Because as it turns out, all consciousness is made of this energy. So in my mind, we're living in this hologram that's created by every piece of consciousness out there, from insects to us, and not just on Earth, of course, throughout the cosmos, throughout dimensions of time and space. And you know, we're, we're, we're basically all kind of like a piece of this greater God consciousness, because this energy of consciousness flows out of the centers of galaxies and it branches as it goes and it spirals as it goes. And so it's it's coming out of the one side of the galaxy at the center. You know, mainstream science says that the centers of galaxies, there's a black hole. But what it really is, is a superluminal sun. And it creates a toroidal field, a donut shaped field around it. So galaxies have these toroidal donut shaped fields around them. And that energy coming out, that scalar energy, it comes out spiraling and branching as it goes. And it follows the flow of that field. And it's relayed throughout the cosmos, through all the suns and the planets, because it's been discovered at the center of all suns and planets, they have, quote, black holes, which are also these little superluminal skater energy suns at their centers. So the Earth has this, our sun has it, all the suns and planets have this. So that energy coming from the center of the galaxy is relayed outward through the portals, at the centers of all these suns and planets, these, quote, black holes, and it creates this cosmic web of energy of consciousness. So there's like this super consciousness flowing through everything, kind of like the force in Star Wars. And we're little antennas that pick it up and put our own frequency onto it. So I put the Ken frequency on, mm -hmm. you put the Nick frequency on, a bug, you know, an insect, a tree, whatever, any kind of consciousness is an antenna for this energy, captures it and rebroadcasts it in a localized field. And so we have this giant matter energy circuit that we're immersed in. But the, the important point is, is that consciousness comes first, energy comes first, and it slows down and coagulates into the electromagnetic spectrum of energy that we're familiar with and matter itself. And so this is how, you know, for example, like when a, when a planet is being formed, we're told that's another thing that we're wrong about, but we're told that, you know, at the centers of planets, there's this big molten blob of iron and, and blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah. How do all these different minerals and, and elements get created if everything started from a ball of molten iron or whatever, a molten whatever? It's like, how is it going to turn into these different elements? Um, well, it's all done through frequency, and, it, and it's because the Earth and planets don't work the way that we've been told they work. Um, and so, uh, so once you know more about that and how it works, the physics makes sense. And so... Um, and, and you can also use this in very practical terms in our lives. You know, you don't have to be a physicist or know anything about this stuff more than just the concepts. If you understand basic concepts, for example, you can radically improve plant growth in your garden 
or in your kitchen, you know, growing sprouts or improve your health with it or make free energy with it or whatever, you know. And so this is what a lot of people do know about and have figured out throughout history and, and even now. And, uh, you know, they, they come up with these amazing technologies and techniques to help out humanity, but it's usually suppressed by the powers that be. Now, the ancients, they, they had an understanding of these things. How, so, A, how did they learn about these things? How do you think they were able to pick up on these things when people like us with technology and all of our great stuff, we can't, um, you know, pick up on these things very easily, at least. Um, and then how would they utilize their technology or their way of life to, I guess, um, magnify these effects and improve their lives? I think it comes from a lot of different sources. Um, and based on my experience and from what I've seen, um, for example, um, I was in Bosnia few years ago at the Bosnian pyramids, I was asked to come and speak there about the physics and energetics of pyramids because uh, Dr. Sam Osman Agic, uh, an archaeologist in Bosnia, discovered the largest pyramids to date in Bosnia. And they were so big, people thought they were mountains because they were covered with dirt and trees and grass and such. But they were gigantic. The, the base of the larger pyramid in this complex of pyramids could cover the neighboring town next door. It's so big. So everybody just thought for a long time there were mountains. And when he started excavating them and uncovering it, nobody believed him at first, but now they've excavated enough of it uh, that, um, that it's obvious that these things were constructed. They weren't just some mountains. Uh, they have, you know, block and all kinds of stuff in them. And, but uh, at any rate, when I was over there, Sam took me to this archaeological site out away from the Bosnian pyramids, uh, out in the woods, and it was someplace that only locals knew about. It was uh, in this beautiful area in this these kind of mountainous um, tree forest, very beautiful. And out in the middle of nowhere in this, on this mountain, there was this stone obelisk about 15 feet tall. And it was carved, and it, it looked you know, kind of like the Washington Monument, four sides and a pyramid on top. But on the top of the pyramid, it had a ball and then on the corners, down each corner of this thing, it had what looked like a carved rope, you know, on the corners. And then it also had carvings in the faces of the, of the obelisk. And what I found interesting was, uh, first of all, looking at it from an energetic standpoint, and it was made out of a stone that was high in monatomic elements, which means it would be a very good conductor of skater waves or consciousness. And so... Um, so I was there with some archaeologists, and one of them just happened to be very psychic, <laughs> very interesting. So I'm looking at this, and just based on how it was constructed, I said, well, my impression is that this was probably a communications device because, you know, considering the size and the construction and everything, I would imagine that people probably got in a circle and sat around this thing and meditated or prayed, and maybe to communicate to their gods or maybe to communicate to other people on the planet if somebody else had a an obelisk, or maybe they didn't, you know, whatever. But I figured there, this was probably some kind of communication device, right? And uh, there are other purposes too for obelisks. But um, as I'm saying this, the psychic archaeologist says, that's exactly what my guides are telling me, except it wasn't one circle of people, it's three. It's like three concentric rings of people. And when they were meditating, they would visualize 
a vortex of energy, each ring would visualize a vortex going in opposite directions and it would create this scalar vortex, which then could be used, yes, to interact with extraterrestrials that they were having contact with and other people on earth that they were having contact with. Uh, and so, so there's one possible way that ancient people may have accumulated information. There are others, of course, obviously, possibly extraterrestrial physical contact. Um, and for some people that may sound far out, but I, in 1995, I encountered three reptilian extraterrestrials in the physical and had a whole experience with them and was given all kinds of information that helped me develop technologies that I've developed. So, and I also know a lot of scientists and engineers and inventors who have had extraterrestrial contact of various kinds also to help them develop technologies to help humanity. So it may be that, you know, and you look at some of these cultures like ancient Egypt, where they've got all these um, hieroglyphs of, you know, humanoid people with dog heads, animal heads or bodies or whatever, minotaurs, all those kinds of things. Um, maybe they were just representations, but maybe they were having contact with races of extraterrestrials that look like that. Who knows? And then just in a commonsensical way, too, nowadays, there are Aboriginal people, for example, in South America that, you know, they will have all this knowledge of, for example, herbology, you know, like the medicine men may have all this extensive knowledge of herbology in their rainforest. And when scientists go and ask them how they know it, they say, well, we speak to the plants. So they actually go and speak to the plants. They go and meditate and they get information from the plants themselves. So many years ago, probably 25, 30 years ago, I was exposed to that concept. And I thought, well, let me try it and see if that'll work. And I, I had this giant oak tree out in my backyard that was like 250 years old. It was huge. And I just went out and I literally hugged it and I sat there and meditated with it. And it took me about a half an hour for my mind to slow down enough to where I kind of synced up with this tree. And then all of a sudden I started seeing all these pictures of what had happened around this tree in its lifetime. And, you know, was it coming from the tree? I, I think it was. But wherever it was coming from, I was getting all these visuals on some interesting information and stuff, you know, seeing Native Americans and all kinds of things in the area. So who knows where they got this information, but it probably yeah. came from a lot of different sources. And a lot of times what we call intuition is, is actually uh, information coming from another realm of some kind where you're interacting with some other kind of uh, consciousness. I've also been told by three or four different psychics that some of the ideas I've gotten for technology came from reptilian scientists inside the earth, right? Really? Now there's, That's and I kind of, when they said that, I kind of thought that, you know, there's a little bit of support for that in my life because I had done meditations and had dreams and out-of-body experiences and stuff. And I kept seeing these stairs going down inside the earth. And, in a, and I kept wondering, well, where is this coming from? Why is it? And so some of these people I know in the secret space programs have said that there are a bunch of different races living inside the earth because the earth is very cavernous. And there are ancient races of humans, for example, that are very advanced that live inside the earth. And they pass themselves off as extraterrestrials because they have all the technology that an ET might have, you know, interstellar travel capabilities and all that kind of stuff and very advanced technology, but they don't want our militaries and such to discover them, although they have been discovered now. But, uh, and so, you know, these two guys I know in the secret space programs have both met, had they been inside the earth and met with some of these humans that are very advanced. And they, they, these guys told me that they have these giant rooms where they'll have hundreds of, I guess you'd call them psychics that sit in these special chairs 
and they communicate with humans on the surface to help guide us. So they're kind of like this race, this very ancient race of humans that are very advanced that also kind of guide us the best they can because they understand that what happens on the earth, what happens on the surface of the earth with us could destroy the whole planet. And therefore they, they want to guide us into a, a positive future. So, you know, if that kind of stuff is true, ancient people could have been getting information from all kinds of sources. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, any thoughts on how they were able to do some of the building that they were, you know, the, the pyramids, how, uh, any thoughts on that? You know, I've all always kind of thought about superconductors. You know, how are you going to levitate these big, massive blocks? Maybe superconductors were a part of it. What, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, well, ancient people definitely knew about superconductivity because um, these monoatomic minerals, which are superconducting, uh, there are certain, well, volcanic rock, all volcanic rock is high in these superconducting monoatomic elements, but normally in their standard form, they're not superconducting. They have to be converted into individual monoatomic particles, but they're kind of hiding because these monoatomics are not regular matter. They're like this multidimensional matter that partially exists in our 3D space, but it also partially exists simultaneously in other dimensions of time and space. So they're really weird and they can be extracted from volcanic rock, but they're not native, you know, in their, when they, in that rock, they're not in a native form that would create superconductivity. And when you analyze them with conventional methods that we use, for example, like spectroscopy, they will collapse into other elements because of the, the process of spectroscopy. It heats something up and burns it. And that makes these, these monoatomics collapse into other elements. So for example, monoatomic gold will collapse into silica if you use spectroscopy on it. So this is why this stuff hasn't been discovered by the mainstream um, so far. But um, at any rate, so ancient people knew about this stuff and they would take these minerals and they would do things with them. They would build structures with them, for example, like obelisk and pyramids or like the Celtic round towers, for example. Those were antennas that would ground skater frequencies into the earth for many miles around, which would improve plant growth because it would, it would uh, improve, it would basically de-stress the bacteria and the living organisms in the soil. And then they would eat more rock and break it down more quickly and create more bioavailable particles and more monoatomic particles in the soil that plants would uptake and then the plants would be bigger and stronger. And then the animals that ate them would be bigger and stronger and healthier. So the ancient people knew about this stuff and they would, they utilized it and they would even mark these rocks, these volcanic rocks that were high in these monoatomics, they would mark them. And so when anthropologists and archeologists came across them, they didn't understand what was going on and why they marked them that way. And they come up with all kinds of ridiculous theories. And, you know, these ancient structures like the, the Celtic round towers or these obelisks, you know, um, these, these round towers would have a, you know, let's say you've got a 60 foot tall round tower made out of stone and it looks like a rook's castle. And maybe about 20, 30 feet up, there would be a door <laughs> into this round. And these things are only like maybe 15 feet in diameter. They're not really big around, but there would be this door up, you know, way above where anybody could reach. And archaeologists would come up with all kinds of nonsensical yeah. theories about why that was there, saying things like, oh, they would build a ladder and climb up into the round tower and then toss the ladder away or burn it. And, um, and then they would be safe from their enemies. Oh, yeah, well, first that's... of all, there's hardly any room in there to keep many people, number one. 
And what's going to stop their enemies from just building a ladder and climbing up there and getting them, right? It's just <laughs> stupid. It's not what it was. When you understand the physics of these towers and what their impact was on the soil and the land and the animals and the plants and the water, um, what they could do with that door is they could put materials into that space, whether it's an herb or a stone or whatever, they could put a material in there and that would impart frequencies from that material into the ground. Oh, interesting. And they could have specific applications if they wanted to improve crops, for example, or improve water and structure water homeopathically, all kinds of applications for that. And now there are books that teach people how to do that with like PVC pipe. You know, the, the, there's a book called The Secret Life of Plants that was written by Peter Tompkins back in the 70s. And um, I believe, no, it wasn't The Secret Life of Plants. It was The Secrets of the Soil which I think was also written by Peter Tompkins. And Secrets of the Soil, they have a whole chapter dedicated to what they call cosmic energy pipes, where it's basically doing the exact same thing as a Celtic round tower, taking four-inch PVC pipe and burying it a certain depth into the ground and a certain height above ground and cutting a little doorway onto it and putting materials into that little, you know, putting a little platform in there and putting materials in there to impart frequencies in the soil, and then it'll improve your garden. Interesting. And they these have been demonstrated over and over again. I've heard so, of um, I've heard of like sticking a post and then wrapping copper around. Yeah, it exactly. Like- that's slim spurling technology. That's using copper wire as a waveguide, a skater waveguide to ground these skater frequencies in the atmosphere into the ground and improve it. That's exactly it. So yeah, the ancient people knew a lot about superconductivity and energetics. And um, they were probably given it from, you know, various sources, maybe extraterrestrials, interdimensional beings, people inside the earth, who knows, wow. maybe nature itself, Interesting. Um, whatever, their, whoever their gods were, but uh, they definitely knew about this stuff. They wrote about it. They talked about it. And then, you know, mainstream archaeology, because it's been misguided, uh, they look at that and they go, oh, that was symbolic or, oh, they were just talking about yeah. uh, religion or whatever. You know, it's like, no, yeah. a lot of it's literal. Yeah. And when like, you look like, at it from a literal standpoint, you can do things like, for example, reverse engineer technologies from ancient hieroglyphs. I have a friend, a brilliant guy who was studying the uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs, and he wound up developing free energy technologies and other technologies from hieroglyphs. He developed um, a light that um, would, would light up an area from an external field that um, it was all based on ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs that he, he also developed a device that could modify the weather. And he accidentally created a tornado out in the desert somewhere out in the Southwest. So yeah, they, they, you know, it's like a lot of this stuff, the secrets are there right in front of us. And it's been, we've been intentionally very often misguided away from it so that we won't understand it. So you living in Florida, there's a, there's a great YouTube channel that I don't know if you've seen, but you'll have to check out called old world Florida by a guy named Dr. Norco Longo or Longo Norco. And um, he's done a lot of work looking into the ancient history of Florida. And he's really big into pyramids in Florida on golf courses. These golf courses have just, these pyramids have been covered. They're everywhere. They've got these big anchor stones. What, uh, what have you looked into any of this stuff in the ancient history? Oh, yeah. In the ancient yeah, history in Florida. Yeah, exactly. There's pyramids all over Florida. There's also, there used to be, thousands and thousands of what they call turtle mounds, well, not turtle mounds, mounds, shell mounds, that the ancient native people would build these big mounds out of shell, you know, crushed shell. And, um, and of course, the mainstream archaeology says, oh, those were just uh, garbage dumps. 
you know, blah, 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 which is nonsense. Um, and what they were, were energy devices. Um, they were like a cone or um, a sphere or a pyramid can ground energy into the earth and do the same thing that these Celtic round towers could do, improve crop growth, structure water, improve the weather, all kinds of stuff. Particularly like pyramids and cones, they, they create a skater vortex up out of the tip. And this is absolutely factual because it's been measured. Uh, I, I was on a team of engineers and scientists that measured this at the Bosnian pyramids. We took a, a drone and flew it up over the pyramids there and measured different types of energy. And we discovered that there was a, a infrared and a skater vortex, double helix vortex coming up off the tip of the pyramid. And other people have measured these same double helix vortices coming off of uh, pyramids. So the ancient people in Florida, same thing. They would build mounds, they would build pyramids out of whatever materials they had around because it turns out the best conductors for skater waves are not metals, they're non-metals. So mm. bone, wood, plastic even, uh, whatever the, you know, so you can just, for example, stack volcanic rocks or shell, which is high in these monoatomic elements, because living organisms ingest minerals and create angstrom and monoatomic particles within them through enzyme activity and, and bacterial activity. So, so shell is naturally going to be high in these monoatomics. And if you build a pyramid or a cone, it's naturally going to create a skater vortex and a skater field around it, which is going to enhance all life around it. So the ancient people understood that and they did it. And unfortunately, out of sheer stupidity, you know, back in the early 1900s and later, the Department of Transportation in Florida bulldozed most of the shell mounds in Florida and used it for road fill. Oh. And so most of these magnificent structures are gone. Uh, but there is one down the road from my house, maybe about 20 minutes down the road from my house called Turtle Mound uh, in New Smyrna Beach. And uh, you can still go there. And, you know, I have yet, I, I've got to do this sometimes. I've got a device called a GDV camera that can measure skater fields. And I, I need to go down there and measure and see what kind of fields coming off of that thing. Um, but these, these weren't garbage dumps. That's such nonsense. Why would you bother piling up your garbage? I mean, yeah, obviously you want to isolate it if you have garbage. But generally with the way ancient people live, they didn't have piles of garbage like we have. You know, they, everything disintegrated and was recycled, you know, and so they didn't have a need to get dump off plastic somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, it's just anytime it's I like animals, about... like where all the uh, where's all the trash mounds for animal waste, right? Yeah. They just go take a dump in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> Man, anytime I read about these, you know, or hear about these people destroying ancient things, I I just wonder, are they doing it on purpose? Is this just accidental stupidity because like you know i can see why like big oil or green energy or any of these things wouldn't want us to have free energy but i can also see that like you look at like what they did to us in covid the, these governments i i can imagine like none of these governments want us to be empowered by our own energy sources imagine the types of businesses we could run if we didn't have to worry about energy. I mean, if my HOA had its own, you know, whatever, or we were able to have it in our homes, we would have so much power compared to what we have today. It, right. they, they just can't allow that. I think empowering the individual 
is one of the things that they are really trying to prevent. Well, I've had the interesting experience of meeting a lot of very, very high level politicians. You know, I've met like most of the U.S. presidents that have been alive in the last 30 years or so. I've met Clinton and the two Bushes and um, Carter and Ford. And um, I never met Obama. But, um, you know, I, I worked with Coretta Scott King, so I met a bunch of them. And then I also back in the 70s, I met Joe Ford. And the thing, you know, it was very brief, but the thing that I've realized is that, first of all, those people at the higher echelons of power, they generally look at us like a farmer would look at a herd of cattle yeah. or something to be harvested. And so they put systems in place basically to get us to do the work of creating profit for them. And so... So all of these systems, these centralized power systems, financial systems, energy systems, everything, you know, is designed very much like a, a farm where, you know, if you think about these big feedlots in Texas, so they may have hundreds of thousands of head of cattle, maybe millions, these giant feedlots, you can drive for miles and miles and miles and you see thousands and thousands and thousands of these herds of cattle. And there's some big agribusiness that, you know, owns that, controls it, profiting from it. And not one of those cows, I would, I would bet, has any inkling of the larger reality that they're involved in, right? Yeah. They're basically a food system. And they're in this inhumane, usually in those big cases, those big feedlots, a very inhumane food system. But the, the cattle themselves really have no inkling of the bigger reality that they're in, I don't think. And that's a good metaphor for the way life on earth is. The, the people at the upper echelons of power on earth, sometimes they're not all human, number one. Yeah, I can imagine. It's like, that. how far <laughs> does that power structure go? You know, does it go off planet? Probably. Um, but even if that wasn't the case, you look at the power structure on earth, the people at the very top of the food chain with the power and the wealth and the money uh, and the resources, they want to keep it centralized so that they can reap the rewards and the profits off of it and use us like a feedlot or a bacteria culture to produce for them. And so if we're empowered where we're autonomous and we can generate our own power and, and have uh, control of our own destinies, that doesn't serve them. And so that's why, for example, socialism and communism and these, or, or you know, predatory capitalism, it yeah. doesn't really matter whatever system is operating on earth, they're all designed to, the way that they're operating now, they're designed to control people and, and basically feed off of them. And so when you understand that, when you look at things macroscopically, there's not that much of a difference in many ways between a capitalist system and a communist system or a socialist system. The end result is very similar. It's just some systems have more freedoms for the individual than others. So yeah, they definitely do not want us being able to produce our own power or to understand the true nature of reality. And that's, you know, a real world example of that Sam Osmanagic, the archaeologist in Bosnia that discovered these pyramids, when he started coming out with all this evidence that these were real pyramids and that they were finding artifacts and writing and things that nobody knew what they were, and it contradicted the whole history that we've been taught on Earth completely. And, uh, and so what happens? He immediately, there are archaeological societies or professional societies you know, it's like if you're going to be an engineer, there are professional engineering societies that you can join 
and you get licensing for certain things, that kind of stuff. Same thing with archaeology, any of the scientists, there are professional organizations and support groups and those kinds of things. And if you're if you step out of the official narrative that they support, they will immediately not only ostracize you, but they will force their members, they will threaten their members with removal of licenses and privileges and basically destroy their careers if they even affiliate with you. So that's exactly what happened to Sam Osmanagic. He comes out and says, we've got these pyramids. They're at least 38,000 years old. This completely changes the whole history that we're taught on earth, blah, blah, blah. And immediately the all of the archaeological professional societies and other groups immediately start attacking him and saying, these aren't really pyramids. This is all a lie, blah, blah, blah. And archaeologists that wanted to come there and see for themselves risked losing their licenses and risked losing their, their livelihoods if they even went there. And so only a very handful of brave ones actually did go and investigate. And so this is how knowledge and history and everything is very, very controlled. They've set up organizations, very often they're controlled opposition. And so they're not looking out for it. It's, it's like regulatory agencies, you know, government regulatory yeah. agencies. <laughs> you know, they're so infiltrated with cronies from the industries they're supposed to be regulating. They, they're really just maintaining the status quo for the industries they're regulating. Yeah, they're protection. So that's kind of how life on earth works these days. And that's why yeah, you're, you're not going to be seeing this stuff willingly handed over to the people. It seems like we have such a battle if we want to turn this thing around. It's hard to know where to start. Like some people advocate for political. We need to just vote our way to freedom. Like I, I don't <laughs> buy that one at all. We just need well, to get the right people in there. It should be obvious to the most, you know, except the most brain dead people now that our elections are controlled. So you're not going to get anything yeah, through the election system. We just need system. to get the right people in, or maybe the real, real people in there <laughs> or whatever. Um, I, I tend to think that the best way for us to turn this thing around is I'm, I'm a horrible example for this. I'm 35 and divorced or 37 <laughs> divorced, no kids. But I think the best thing we can do is have a lot of kids raise them the right way, keep them out of government schools and just keep plugging along. W what do you think? How do we turn this thing around? Yeah, that's exactly it. Cause I do a lot of public speaking and people ask me, you know, what can I do? And you, you do what you can do within your sphere of, of influence. You know, you don't have to be another Martin Luther King or whatever necessarily. You do what you can do. So, for example, you've got this podcast where you're educating people about all kinds of stuff that the mainstream won't touch. And you're doing what you can do. I'm doing what I can do. Somebody else may only be able to talk to their friends and relatives. Somebody else may be a politician that can have influence over other people or because um, there are, I mean, there are a very small number of honest politicians who are trying to improve things. And also there are people in every walk of life, every, you know, even these government agencies that have been weaponized against us, there are good people within them. They're fighting uh, the good fight to, to help humanity. And so you do what you can do and don't ever give up hope or think that, you know, they've got things sewn up and it's, you know, unwinnable. Absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, I think the powers that be on earth are quickly becoming the powers that were. They're losing their power uh, because there are good people at every level of the power structure on earth. They're fighting against this tyranny and, and control that's going on on earth. And it's 
it's like how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? Because at one level, there's the obvious stuff going on, but there's also very much a spiritual battle going on as well. And so when you recognize that, there are things that you can do with your own spirituality to be clear and to be uplifted and to have integrity and, you know, and base your actions in love instead of fear, those kinds of things. So you, the biggest thing you can do is work on yourself and raise your frequency, so to speak, raise your level of consciousness and be happy, be healthy, enjoy life, have an uplifting life and understand that, you know, we are in charge of our destinies. We control our realities and therefore we can manifest even in the midst of chaos or horrible things going on, you know, we can manifest decent lives and model it for other people. Um, even in Nazi Germany, there were people that were, you know, aside from the Nazis, that were not suffering immensely. They were, you know, in communist China. I've been to China and my wife is Chinese from Taiwan. You know, we've been over there and seen the, the sad state of affairs in China, the way that the people there are being enslaved. But at the same time, there are awake and aware people over there who are completely not buying into that reality and they're able to live very wonderful, uplifting lives over there despite all of the uh, enslavement. So you just basically opt out of the mainstream reality and don't buy into it and be very conscious about how you create your own reality. And you can wind up having a really wonderful life. I mean, I have the most crazy Forrest Gumpian life, just the most amazing things happen. And it's not that it's always simple and easy, but I always make it through whatever scrapes uh, that come my way. And and I don't get into victimhood because I know I'm responsible for whatever it is going on in my life. I'm the one creating it. I'm the one that chose to create free energy technologies. I'm the one that chose to develop a technology that can balance the weather and, and counteract weather warfare. I'm the one that chose to do those things. And I know the consequences of it. And therefore, I've had attempts on my life and all kinds of other things. But I'm not afraid of that. You know, I've, I, I've evolved myself to the point where I have this mission and purpose in life and these powers are not going to stop me. I think that's a perfect way to end this. Ken, it was great talking to you. I really had a great time. Everybody, I hope you enjoy this. Give us a shout. Have a great day. Thank you.